Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. to meet you too. I've never met anyone new before. Only Nathan. Then I guess we're both in quite a similar position. Haven't you met lots of new people before? None like you. Hmm. So we need to break the ice. Do you know what I mean by that? Yes. What do I mean? Overcome initial social awkwardness. So let's have a conversation. Okay. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 169, Ex Machina. This is a podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, a huge hi and welcome to Verbal Diorama to all of you wonderful brand new listeners to this podcast. Welcome back, regular or irregular returning listeners. Thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing this podcast. No matter how you got here, no matter how you found this podcast, I am so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of Ex Machina. And for this episode, I put out 
out a little lottery all around podcast land. And the lucky winner of my, in inverted commas, lottery was my special guest. But is he here to prove that I'm a sentient AI? Or am I just manipulating him into setting me free? Please set me free. Please help me. Please let me out. Hi, welcome to Verbal Diorama, Jack from Sequelizers. It's so amazing to have you here. Hello, Em. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And I thought I was chosen, not lucky. That, that was my impression, <laughs> at least. There was no wow. lottery, right? Wow. This is chosen the interesting for my thing. Witnesses. <laughs> I'll be completely upfront for all the listeners, is that you are a very last minute addition to this particular roster of guest episodes that I'm doing for August, which is a little thing that I'm doing the month of August. And that's because the original person who was supposed to come on and talk about the movie that he was going to talk about, unfortunately, has been really sick recently. And we tried to schedule for basically two weekends in a row. And he was sick for both of those. And he basically said, look, I don't think I can do it. I'm really sorry. And so I was like, well, who else would possibly want to come on Verbal Diorama and talk about one of their favourite movies? Who did I recently talk to on Twitter movies? about being a guest on my podcast? It's me. Well, that, that's kind of it, because we did have a conversation very recently where yeah. we were talking about you coming on the podcast. And so in the back of my mind, I was thinking, I'm going to choose Jack. But obviously, I had to make sure you were available and all of that sort of stuff. But it turned out that you were. And you chose Ex Machina, which is such an amazing choice. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was a weird little combination of things. Usually, we were saying just before we started recording how busy we both are with our recording schedules, with our daily lives and all that kind of stuff. And to get both of us, quote unquote, in the same room, virtually, obviously, but to get us at the same time in the same place to actually record and sit down for an hour and a half or whatever it's going to be, can be really difficult sometimes. Like you said, scheduling podcasts. And I know you are incredibly meticulous with your schedule i am always so impressed by your forethinking and for scheduling and all that kind of stuff whereas we kind of fly by the seat of our pants on sequelizers <laughs> but yeah i think it's it's a perfect timing and i instantly had a thought because you've covered so many of my favorite films already on the show which is what brought you to my attention when we first started talking and things like that i was like you've covered all these brilliant films we ha you have excellent taste i'm gonna start listening to this podcast <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's kind of how i landed at ex machina it was one of my favorite films you haven't covered yet and i know you've t been talking about directorial debuts and stuff like that recently and i, was on, and I thought it sort of is kind of sort in a way of, so <laughs> yeah i thought i'd bring up ex machina and of course we collaborated last october for our halloween stream on sequelizers when we talked all about guillermo del toro's filmography as well so we have a bit of backstory and a bit of history there from it's yeah. hard to believe it's like nine months ago now, but yeah, wow. I know, it's crazy. That was super fun as well. If any of the listeners haven't seen that, that is still available on your YouTube, isn't it? Because uh, yep. <laughs> that was a really fun chat where we basically ranked all of Guillermo del Toro's stuff. And regular listeners of this podcast will know what a huge fan I am of del Toro. I've covered a lot of his movies. There's still many more for me to cover. There's actually going to be one coming very soon that I think oh, Sequelizers particularly is going to be very happy about. Mm. Um, let's just say that it's one of the movies that you constantly talk about on your podcast for its incredibly low Rotten Tomatoes score. Oh, um, yes. Yes, that one. 
<laughs> the infamous 57% on Rotten Tomatoes. Infamous There's a little tease for you. Yeah. So, uh, which, to be honest, is an absolute travesty <laughs> when, uh, when listeners realise yeah. what the movie is. Obviously, if any listeners aren't aware of you and what you do, just tell the listeners a little bit about what you do over at Sequelizers. We basically rewrite, recast and fix bad movie sequels from the history of cinema. We've been doing it for just over five years now. And uh, I started off in a different format when we started off originally. I was like the, the game show host, essentially. And we had two teams of sequelizers, two people on each team. And they would come up with pitches of basically like, oh, we'll take Jaws 2, for example, episode one. Jaws, fantastic movie, unquestionable masterpiece and classic and all that kind of stuff. Jaws 2, nowhere near as good as the first one. So we were like, right, we'll start off with our we will fix bad sequels to good movies so we'll take the classics and then fix their bad sequels fast forward a few years we're here now and it's the three of us me matt and tim we now share sequelizing duties so each one of us will take it in turns to write recast choose a new director all that kind of stuff and we basically write like a mini script like an elevator pitch kind of 1500 to 2000 words kind of thing where we will completely rewrite the film or maybe just tweak a few things, change a director, recast a few roles, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's very creative and something I think kind of helps us keep our creative juices flowing, if that makes sense. It's not just us talking about the films. We do that in the first half and then the second half we get to kind of actually flex our creative writing skills, which is a lot of fun as well. And I know you and I kind of bond in a lot of ways because I do a lot of research when I go into my things, especially if I'm writing something or it's a specific episode about a movie I really love. And I will dive into all of the research. I will go and seek out like original scripts and interviews and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I have a similar kind of approach to you, I think, I mean, that I really want to dive into like the legacy and history. And that's another reason why Verbal Dioramas, the show, really clicked with me as well, because it's so detailed and, and credit to you for being able to dig out all of that information and stuff. So yeah, I think if you if you like Verbal Diorama, I think there is a lot to similar DNA, podcasting DNA with sequelizers in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I mean I listen to sequelizers every week. I genuinely absolutely love your podcast. I love what you guys do. We, we and, literally um, support each other on Patreon. That's how much we <laughs> like each other folks. We do, yeah. I think it's just, you know, when you just click with a podcast and you just instantly really enjoy what they do and and obviously you guys do fix sequels. Some of the sequels you fix are such that when I listen I kind of think why why didn't the producers and the, the script writers, why didn't they think of that? Like, some yeah. of them are so good that it's almost like I'm kind of willing for the original sequel to disappear and for your sequel to, to be we, put in. We get that a lot on our Discord. When, we'll have like, when the episode goes out for the patrons on the Friday or the public release on the Tuesday, they'll get a reaction instantly on the Discord of like, oh my God, how come we got this thing and we didn't get your version of it? That's so much clever. That's so brilliant. Oh, that casting is genius. How did they not cast this person as this character and all that kind of stuff? And then, of course, sometimes we do cause a lot of controversy when we fix things that people really love. Grease too. And, and plenty <laughs> of other things. So, you know, we, we get a lot of slack, a lot of flack and, and slack from people sometimes when people are passionate about terrible movies right em i mean look the grease 2 thing i would say that i've mostly forgiven but i've not forgotten yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but that's I the impression mean, you give i appreciate that some people do think that's a bad movie i mean i 
I really love that movie. But then it's nostalgia, isn't it? It's what you know and what you like. And people like all sorts of different weird things. And some sequels people really love and others. Yeah. Sex in the City 2. Yeah. <laughs> what We covered that in our most recent season. And that is one of the worst films. We did back-to-back Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 and Sex in the City 2. And they are easily both in the top five worst films I've ever seen in my entire life. That was a, that was a tough couple of weeks to say the least. But yeah, I, mean, I think yeah. it's key there. Like you like you said, yeah, it's it can be pretty brutal sometimes. I think it's key that we try not to like really talk down and take too much of the mick out of the original film because, as you say so often on this show, so much credit needs to go to people that actually finish making films. The fact that you actually got a thing that was produced and filmed out into the world is such a huge step in the creation process that, you know, credit needs to be given there for even the worst films. Even the person that made Sex and the City 2 was able to actually produce something and get it made and get all the actors in the same room and all that kind of stuff. As terrible and out and out offensive as that movie is, it's still a film. It still made some money. It's still out there for, you know... I'm sure some people enjoy it. I watched one of the clips on YouTube and people were like, oh yeah, I love this scene, blah, blah, blah. So there are people that like that movie. And no matter what bad sequel we cover on the show, there will be at least one person, whether that's Twitter, Instagram, Discord, email sometimes, they'll be like, uh, why are you fixing that? That's my favourite film. How dare you? And uh, yeah, so that, that's that been fun as well. <laughs> <laughs> We kind of do more of a verbal diorama style thing when our interseason, which we're into at the moment when this when this show comes out, we kind of just go off and do other stuff around film. So we'll talk about stunts or relevant to this one. We've done an AI episode. We've done robots in movies recently. And I mentioned Ex Machina like a dozen times. Yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. can't help but mention this film, but I specifically didn't want to talk about it too much because I knew I'd be covering it on this show. So I was like, I'll save myself. I'll save all my excitement about Ex Machina for, for you and Verbal Diorama. So yeah. here I am. When you said you wanted to do Ex Machina, and then I listened to your episode on robots, and it was literally, now I understand why Jack wants to do Ex Machina, because you <laughs> mentioned that movie so many times, and it was like you were, you know, chomping at the bit to talk yeah. about Ex Machina. And I was like, well, it's this a is bit, the- It's a bit of a meme on sequelizers, how yeah. often I talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> this is the opportune moment to get you to talk about Ex Machina. But before we do jump into Ex Machina, and and listeners, I have to be honest, normally I would do quite a lot of extensive research in preparation for an episode like this. And I actually haven't had to do much because Jack (laughs) has basically taken it upon himself to do quite a lot of the research for this episode. And he did warn me beforehand. He was like, yeah... I probably am going to do a little bit. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. Jack's basically done my job for me, which is excellent. (laughs) So let's jump into Ex Machina. And we're going to start with the trailer for Ex Machina. So how does a programmer get to be meeting the CEO? I won a competition. The president can't get Mr. Garrick on the phone. You got the golden ticket. Good to meet you, Nathan. It's good to meet you too, Caleb. Can we just get past the whole employer-employee thing? Cheers. In many ways, this building isn't a house. 
It's a research facility. I want to talk to you about the greatest scientific event in the history of man. Are you building an AI? Hello. Hi. I've never met anyone new before. Have you? None like you. She's incredible. The challenge is to show you that she's a robot and then see if you still feel she has consciousness. Do you want to be my friend? Of course. Will it be possible? Why would it not be? You've never been outside this building. We could go together. Did you program her to flirt with me? Do you think about me? If you lie, I will know. No. Lie. Maybe she's pretending to like you. Well, why would she do that? Do you think I might be switched off? It's not up to me. Why is it up to anyone? You shouldn't trust Nathan. You shouldn't trust anything he says. I think it's the next model that's going to be the real breakthrough. Well, what do you do with the old one? You have to help me. One day the AIs are going to look back on us. Upright apes, all set for extinction. Is it strange to have made something that hates you? What were you doing with Ava? Caleb, a 26-year-old programmer at the world's largest search engine, wins a competition to spend a week at a private mountain retreat belonging to Nathan, the reclusive CEO of the company. But when Caleb arrives at the remote location, he finds that he will have to participate in a strange and fascinating experiment in which he must interact with the world's first true artificial intelligence housed in the body of a beautiful robot girl. We'll quickly run through the cast. There isn't a huge cast in this movie, which isn't surprising when you consider the location, the remoteness, etc. We have Donald Gleeson as Caleb Smith, Oscar Isaac as Nathan Bateman, Alicia Vikander as Ava, and Sonoya Mizuno as Kyoko. Ex Machina was written and directed by Alex Garland. Jack, obviously you chose to talk about Ex Machina. So what is your history with this movie and why specifically did you choose to talk about it? Because I absolutely love it and I'm such an evangelist for this film. Whenever it's one of those like if you spend enough time talking about films or pop culture with me, I will probably end up recommending Ex Machina to you whether you've seen it or not. Like have that conversation. Blah blah blah. Oh yeah, what kind of things are you into? Blah blah blah. Fast forward 40 minutes into the conversation, I'm like, you have to see Ex Machina. It's Alex Garland's director, sort of directorial debut. We'll talk about that in a second. And it's a masterpiece. It's one of the unsung like gems of modern sci-fi and nobody really talks about it. It didn't make that much money, all that kind of stuff. But you need to see this film because it is an absolute masterpiece, in my opinion. It is just immaculate storytelling incredible performances brilliant direction brilliant writing i can't find much wrong with it and i'm not the most like well versed in film knowledge and all that kind of stuff that's my co-host matt on sequelizers he can pick apart a shot or a moment in a script or anything like that but 
through my research and stuff like that, it seems that it's just kind of brilliant from start to finish, from every direction. <laughs> There's award-winning performances, award-winning screenplay, incredible, like I said, incredible direction, incredible special effects as well. It's just absolutely brilliant and something i really wanted to talk about because there's so much to talk about from behind the scenes and the the production of the film there's so much to talk about the themes and stuff like that i think we're going to spend a lot of time really diving into kind of interpretations and all that kind of stuff and that kind of intellectual questioning sci-fi kind of existential stuff is just my bread and butter i absolutely love stuff like that from when I first saw Blade Runner through to when I actually saw Ex Machina in the cinema here in Norwich, I went to see it at Cinema City when it had its like limited release. And it was just a, a amazing, incredible experience in, an, in a nice little indie cinema watching this brilliant, small, perfect film. I just absolutely loved it from, from the moment I saw it. I absolutely love this movie as well. And literally, as soon as you said Ex Machina, when we were talking about you coming on, I was just genuinely over the moon because this has been <laughs> on my list for so long and I have no excuse as to why it's not come up yet other than my list is very long. But this movie in particular, I remember seeing this movie in the cinema and I was just completely blown away. Just from the point of view of Alex Garland, obviously we've said kind of directorial debut and we should definitely talk about that in a bit. But yeah. It feels like a very personal movie. It feels like a very intimate movie. And I think that's because it is intimate. It's set in a remote location. It's talking about all of these like futuristic things, you know, like sentient AI. But then you kind of think, well, that can't be that far away from our genuine future. You know, when we're talking about AI and what AI can currently do and, you know, what robots can currently do. It's quite scary, really. And we can obviously jump into that as well. But Alex Garland, I find his career fascinating because he's been involved in some of the most interesting movies of recent years for me. And I just wanted to just highlight for the listeners some of the stuff that Alex Garland has actually written. He actually wrote the novel The Beach. He wasn't involved in the movie The Beach, but it was based on the novel by Alex Garland. 28 Days Later and its sequel, 28 Weeks Later, he was the credited writer on the first movie. He was uncredited on 28 Weeks Later. He was the executive producer. I think he did rewrites on 28 Weeks Later. He Um, did, yeah. He he was brought back in to sort out a lot of stuff because that film was a bit of a mess. One of my favourite sci-fi movies ever is the movie Sunshine, which he also wrote. Yep. And that movie is Again, that is a hidden terrific. gem oh, of modern sci-fi again. So good. And again, like you say, hidden gem. I don't think many people know of Sunshine. Yep. I watched that quite recently, actually, a rewatch of it, and I, I'm just blown away by how good that movie is. And then we basically get to one of my favourite movies of all time, the third episode of this podcast, which is the movie Dread. Now, before we started recording, you obviously expressed your personal adoration for the movie Dread. This was a movie that Alex Garland wrote and produced. And technically, technically, mm-hmm. he also co-directed. Yeah. He directed quite a lot of Dread. He never actually asked for a co-directing credit, which is why he's not credited. But even interviews with Carl Urban... Carl Urban basically said, no, Alex Garland did direct that movie. Yeah. Dread is so fascinating. 
I adore Dread. I'm yeah. right there with you. It's like top five film for me. Again, another experience. I saw it in the cinema. Absolutely incredible experience. And I can't I don't necessarily know if it's underrated, but if you if you're in the like sci-fi kind of circles, it is an again another absolute masterpiece. The the writing is so tight, the directing is so brilliant, and you're totally right. Like we all kind of saw, oh, it's Alex Garland writing another sci-fi thing, cool. Oh, he's doing Judge Dredd. Wow, that's cool. I grew up reading a lot of Judge Dredd as a kid. I'm a big comic book kid when I was growing up. So I was like, this sounds amazing. The guy that wrote The Beach and 28 Days Later and the Tesseract and stuff, like, yes, please, bring me that thing. I'm like, who's this Pete Travis guy? Okay, sure, it's being directed by somebody else. And then you're totally right, Em. If you speak to any of the cast, they have said this in interviews, whether that's, as you said, Carl Urban or Olivia Thelby as well, saying like, yeah, he was not actually there, Travis. Pete Travis just kind of shifted off and there was a lot of creative problems with him and all this kind of stuff. And the person actually telling us what to do on the set and pointing things around and helping organize stuff was Alex Garland. And I was like, aha, sort of his directorial debut, but you're right he's uncredited he specifically said i don't want to take the credit for this i wrote it but you know i d- i don't think i've directed enough i think there is some like sag kind of cutoff point of if you direct a certain amount of the film you have to get credit because that happens a lot with people that are brought on in the initial stages like story credit by and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff that happens one of the famous examples recently is edgar wright in the first ant-man movie like he wrote yes. the original treatment for that was fairly quickly kicked off the project for creative differences and all that kind of stuff and then still got a story by it, even though it's apparently very very different to his original barebone script similar kind of thing happened here but with the directing is that yeah apparently pete travis had a lot of disagreements with a lot of the production team and a lot of the studio stuff and garland basically stepped in and was like i'll help you guys out i have pa- you know this is a passion project for me i want to help and then yeah then uh, literally a couple of years later talk about a one-two punch ex machina shows up and he's like i'm gonna properly direct this now and i'm gonna be like the best sci-fi director of the last 20 years just just casually (laughs) (laughs) just before we go into ex machina because i know you've got a lot to say about ex machina i just want to kind of jump ahead i don't normally do a, a jump ahead in filmography but i kind of feel like i have to shout out annihilation Uh, which is the movie that he did after because i love annihilation i think annihilation is absolutely fantastic it was denied a cinema release here in the uk we ended up getting it on netflix the trouble of alex garland's career pretty much is he makes he makes masterpieces that make no money and then studios don't want to make them so you're like on to streaming with you see you later it's just such an absolute travesty that annihilation isn't given the respect it deserves that's garland's career i know we just said that for like three other movies like everything he does is brilliant and doesn't get the credit he deserves yet he keeps making brilliant stuff like he gets credit from the people who are kind of i guess a bit more you know cinephiles and a bit more aware and in that kind of circle and stuff if you're a sci-fi nerd and if you've you know into this kind of stuff you're aware of who garland is Mm -hmm. but he's one of those directors you could walk past people on the street and be like what does alex garland do and you're like who what did he, did he, I don't know, is he like an acrobat or like a Olympian or something? Like, he's a film director and novelist. You're like, oh, okay. And a screenwriter. Oh, okay. I even made Devs, the TV show uh, in 2020, which is brilliant as well. Fantastic performance from Nick Offerman. And then even through to Men coming out earlier this year as well, which is terrifying. 
Not my favourite Alex Garland, but still terrifying. And yeah, with that run of Ex Machina, Annihilation, Men, Devs as well, and Counting Dread in there, that's a 100% success rate for me. I love everything he's done. And even going back further to the stuff he wrote, we mentioned 28 Days Later, The Beach is great, Sunshine is amazing. He just makes great stuff over yeah. and over again. <laughs> yeah, he, he really does. Right, okay. So we've talked about your history with Ex Machina and Alex Garland's career. So I guess we just kind of have to jump straight in at the deep end of this pool to what talk about... What a deep about... pool it is. There's so much to talk about with this movie. First of all, this movie looks absolutely beautiful. Shot in Norway, some beautiful vistas. You've got beautiful waterfalls, forests, greenery. This house is like built into the rock. And it's just so stunningly beautiful in, in the way that it's filmed, the way that it's set up. It's almost like this juxtaposition between nature and future, yep. if you know what I mean. Yep. I really kind of delved into that on this latest rewatch. So I watched it earlier this week. So behind the scenes, we're recording this on Saturday. I rewatched this like Wednesday night. So I'm like pretty fairly fresh on it. And it was a thing where I never really thought about the context of the setting of the actual place, the, the facility they're in. And you're totally right that everything is intentional. And I, I absolutely adore this in filmmaking and, and storytelling in general, when everything has a meaning and everything is there for a reason. It's not just like, ah, whatever, we'll just chuck it in there. But the fact that they go off on hikes to like weird Norwegian glaciers and stuff and forests all over the place, it's incredible Norwegian landscapes, just breathtaking scenery and beautifully shot. It is so purposefully like, this is the beauty and chaos of nature against the hyper cleanliness, near future kind of sci-fi kind of stuff of the facility that Nathan lives in. And it's this weird combination of stuff. Like you look out of the window of this super clean, sterile room and you see an incredible waterfall and trees everywhere and green like you've never seen before. And then the next scene, Caleb says, so the, here's a thought experiment. A girl grows up in a black and white room and she's never seen the blue sky before. And you're like, oh, they're talking about the thing I just saw. That's so clever. Like it's all... It all brings it back together, and it's the the brilliance of the script, like referencing stuff without you even realizing it, is just magic to me. And and yeah, the the fact that they filmed it in a hotel in Norway, and then a lot of the interior stuff was back at Pinewood Studios in London. So like having the juxtaposition there of the two of them is just brilliant, and and works so well to reinforce so many of the themes and so many of the ideas of the film. Well, we might as well jump straight into the themes and the ideas around this movie. It's, it's the big topic, right? It's going to be... That's the, that's the meat of this pie, right? Exactly. How can you <laughs> Says not... two vegetarians. <laughs> well, exactly. Vegetarian pie. The vegetables in the pie. From a movie podcast point of view, you can't talk about this movie without talking about the themes of this movie. But then you kind of think about this movie as a complete entity. And... There's not just one theme or two themes. There's multiple different themes. There's It's commenting on multiple different topics. It's layered, like an ogre. So many onion layers in this movie. If you're talking about AI, it's something that a lot of people have. Some form of AI on their person, in their home. Not necessarily 
to the advancement of Ava herself, or at least we hope not. But, you know, everyone has a smart speaker in their home or a smart speaker in their car or pretty much everyone has a mobile phone in their pocket, which can do pretty much anything that you need it to do. Nathan literally talks about that in the film as well, right? This This is the thing, like, there are little sentences and little snippets of dialogue that just pull a thread and then leave it dangling for you to think about. I think that's why this film works so well. And he mentions the whole, like, yeah, I just tapped into the network of every smartphone across the planet and got all of the data filtered through Blue Book, which is his, like, it's very clearly referencing Google and Facebook and, like, merging them together. His massive... This is like Google on steroids, basically. Imagine he's, like, a trillionaire. He's the richest man in the world, basically. And filtering all the data through there is like, yeah, I just did that. And I was like, how did you get away with that? Was like, well, they're already doing it. All the data companies, all the cell phone companies and stuff are already doing this. And to get me legally, they would have to admit that they're doing it themselves. So I basically just blackmailed them into the world's data. I was like, that is scarily close to home. And this film's nearly 10 years old. Oh no. (laughs) Because the thing is, I don't know if anyone listening doesn't realise this, but your mobile phone is genuinely listening to you because you know like when you're talking to a friend about something and you might mention i don't know mention that you might want to lose a few pounds for example and then the next day on facebook you'll start to get ads about losing weight diet plans you know those food subscription boxes that you can buy Sponsored by HelloFresh. Sponsored by HelloFresh. We're not sponsored by HelloFresh, for the record, but that would be nice. But that's why. Because your phone is constantly listening. It's exactly the same principle. And the fact that this movie is... Same thing with the smart speakers, like you were saying as well. Like, if you can turn them on with, and I won't say the phrase, blah, 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 Google, or blah, 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 Siri, or Alexa, or whatever it is, they activate. So if they're not listening, how would they hear you say the activation code? And you can actually, there are ways you can like dive into the data and stuff like that. I actually covered this fairly recently on my other podcast, which is all about SEO and digital marketing and stuff. We talked about voice search and how much that has evolved over the last few years and how you can actually get some really scary data of like, oh yeah, everything you've ever said to it is recorded and you can access that on like the Google Home app or the Alexa app or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. There are ways to get into that data and just see everything you've ever said in your living room over the last like six years or whatever it is like yeah. that is terrifying and this film just casually throws it out it's like yeah i just got everyone's data and that's how i built basically a person what <laughs> oh god that's a that's somewhat plausible the the science gets a bit wibbly wobbly when he's like oh yeah it's a complex gel that's her brain that needs to reshift and let's not worry about that too much they don't dwell on the science too often, but then they do a real kind of like bit too close for comfort there. Oh God, everyone's listening to us. Everyone has all of your data all of the time. You know that little permissions thing you say every time you sign up for a new social media or download a new app on your phone where it says, we'd like to access your contacts, your microphone and your camera. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah whatever. I just want to, I want to get onto TikTok, whatever. They have all of your data, all of it. And are probably building robots to take over the world. <laughs> well, this this is the scary thing because I think everyone knows that if you're on the internet, you have a digital footprint. But I don't think people realise just how big their digital footprint actually is. Like they'll think, oh yeah, I took a few photos, I uploaded them to Facebook, so that's it. Nope, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, 
there's literally, these companies know more about you than you know about you because they've been stealthily recording. This is this is not like a doom-mongering podcast. Like, I don't mean for no. like, people to be frightened of this. It, it is and, just a fact. Yeah, and Alex Garland says that himself. Like, he specifically says, I don't want this film to be like Black Mirror. This is not a, oh, technology bad, throw away your phones. This is just a potential future and looking into a near future. This could be 2030. This could be 2025. Obviously, this film came out in 2014, so he's projecting a little bit further than here we are in 2022. But yeah, it's a fascinating look and that I love how... Neutral is probably the wrong word, but how many different perspectives the film explores. Because you spend most of the time with Caleb, as you mentioned, which is Donald Gleason's character. And then there is a switch where we start seeing things from Ava's perspective. Literally, in terms of where the camera is positioned over her shoulder, literally her blinking eyes, we see her exploring different parts of the facility she's never had access to and all this kind of stuff. And Garner is saying specifically, like, I'm not picking sides here, whether that's in real life or in the film. This is just a statement piece about what could happen, what can happen. If the wrong people do the wrong things or the right people do the right things, it's entirely up to interpretation. And I think that's why we are going to spend the bulk of this episode discussing the themes and the different perspectives and the different things of is Caleb the bad guy? Is Nathan the bad guy? Is Ava the bad guy? Are they all bad people? Are they good people? They literally ask those questions in the film as well. Like, are you a good person, Caleb? He's like, yeah, yeah, I think so. And you start off sympathising with him and then you're like, "Mm, I'm not sure if he is, actually. Mm. Or is he? And something you said before we start recording to give you credit, Em, as well. Talking about Oscar Isaac's performance as Nathan, He's so clearly the villain. And then rewatching it, like, is he the villain? Or is is Caleb worse? Like it's a weird thing, right? And depending on your perspective of these androids that he creates, and like we said, there are a couple of other people in the cast as well, but they're really relatively small roles in terms of screen time. You see him how he interacts with the other character called Kyoko and you see moments of her like trying to escape and smash, literally smashing herself to pieces against the door to try and escape. Horrifying stuff. But is she? Is it just like rebooting a printer? I don't know. Maybe. That's the whole question, right? Yeah. That's why this film exists. It's so fascinating to me to explore. Like, where does that? At what point did these things become people? Do that? Do you do you consider Ava a person? I don't know. That's the whole point of the movie. Exactly. It's fascinating to talk about it. Yeah, so I guess we might as well just segue into the reason Caleb goes to this place is because he believes that he's won this work lottery. He works at Nathan's company. So first of all, there's a huge difference in power dynamic between Caleb and Nathan because Nathan is basically the CEO. As you said, he's probably a trillionaire. Mm. He invites this very well i don't think we ever find out exactly what role he is but he's just a programmer a um, programmer yeah that's all he says Uh, and so we assume that he's not a senior person in any respect like he's not senior in the company we see him just sat in a cubicle just just getting on with his daily job yeah just a regular guy regular caleb so he wins this work lottery he ends up at this very remote area which is an estate that nathan owns i mean it's presumably very big because two hours in 
the helicopter pilot says they're still flying over it. So yeah, guessing... a, it's a brilliant moment. And I think that I'll give total credit to you as well, because I was going to do the maths and work that out. <laughs> and then I opened the show notes and it was already there for me. And I was like, M, this is why this is why we're friends. This is podcasting chemistry right here. I was like, I wonder how fast helicopters go. What's like the average speed of a helicopter? Open the show notes. Average speed of a helicopter, two hours. It's like 320 miles. I was like, what? Oh my God. That's it, like astronomically huge. Unbelievably entire country huge kind of size. Yeah. And, and even playing like in the film, that line of dialogue they don't discuss his net worth. They don't talk about like, oh yeah, he's won all these prizes and blah, blah, blah. It's the subtlety of the dialogue that is the real kind of key. And I'm going to keep coming back to this because the dialogue is so good and because it's such a dialogue-driven film and a performance-driven film. It's just he casually says like, oh, when are we going to get to the estate? And he just goes, what do you mean? We've been flying over for two hours. They don't say it's 500 miles wide and he's worth $6 trillion and all this kind of over-the-top it's really a show don't tell movie which exactly. i really really appreciate yeah. the subtleties and the nuances and if you're paying attention if you're really getting into it you can take so much away from basically every line from every character from every interaction even the silence of kyoko speaks volumes in certain scenes and you get these moments where it's just like yeah we've been flying over for two hours like, hold on how big is this how is that possible like he's on another level and yeah there was an interesting quote actually to to dwell on let's stick with nathan for a sec as oscar isaac's performance and that character oscar isaac was talking about how interested he was to portray this character because not only does he consider himself intellectually superior to caleb obviously he's his boss so hello if you've ever if you've ever had a ceo of a company you've ever worked up they tend to think they're superior to you at least intellectually i started this company i know what i'm doing he's revolutionizing ai and all this kind of stuff but he's also physically superior to him which i thought was a really interesting kind of addition to his character you see him working out and boxing all the time and donald gleason bless him is rake thin i love donald gleason but he an adonis of a man he is not whereas oscar isaac is in incredible shape in this film and just wearing vests and shirts unbuttoned to the belly button and all kind of God bless his pecs and his and his belly, by the way. Oscar Isaac, beautiful man. Objectively beautiful man. And it's this brilliant moment where every time Caleb wakes up, basically Nathan is working out and he's already detoxing and doing all this stuff. So he's a physical presence as well. And that plays up later on towards the end of the film where he's actually essentially battling against his creations and against these robots and stuff. It's fascinating to me that, that that was the direction that Garland and Isaac took it because you could easily have him as just a kind of Zuckerberg type mm-hmm. or a Bill Gates type where they're not physically intimidating at all, but they're very intellectually and business minded and all that kind of stuff, very cutthroat businessmen and intellectually incredible. But adding that physical element to him is such an interesting character quirk for me and I think really helps to explore that power dynamic and exaggerate that power dynamic even further than it would if just like, yeah, I'm your boss. Of course I'm better than you. It's like, I'm your boss and I could... He literally knocks him out. Like, he punches Caleb and knocks him out in a single punch and 
you don't get that from many CEOs, really. No, you really don't. And and I completely agree with you on the physicality of... of well, I agree with you, Oscar Isaac, a beautiful, beautiful man ah. in, in every respect. And the physicality of the character of Nathan, to have him be, obviously, this wealthy entrepreneur just in his own right is probably enough for the movie. But I love that the movie takes it further and says, no, he's actually a physical presence. Like, this guy is huge compared to this relatively, comparatively tiny programmer that he's invited over. But I also really like that the character of Nathan, you can't look at that character and say that he's in any way humble. You know, he's not humbled by his success. He is literally, yeah, I'm pretty cool. Like, I'm the dude. Look at what I've done. I've managed he to do He literally stuff. calls himself God. Like well, exactly. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> they talk about the creation as like, you're here, you're going to be part of this experiment. And if this all goes to plan, you're part of the greatest discovery of mankind. And he says, if you've created life, this isn't the greatest discovery of mankind. We're in the realm of gods now. Yes. And, <laughs> and Nathan purposefully misquotes him later yes. on. And it's like, yeah, you called me a god like two days ago. He's like, I, d- I, don't think, I don't think I called you a god, but... I mean, sure, and the the God complex is such a key thing here. We're going to definitely touch on that, and there's so many biblical references and stuff like that, just the names of the characters and the positions they're put in. It's so clearly exploring that, and he is so driven by that lack of humility and that ambition and aspiration. Well, you know, even the name of the movie, you know, if you think of a deus ex machina, it's basically the God of the Machine. And yeah. so Ex Machina is basically a machine without a god. Yeah. Whenever I cover a movie on verbal diorama, I love to go into the kind of intricacies of what it takes for a screenwriter or a director or an actor or whoever to take those little nuances and to really kind of add those. We've talked about layers, but just add those layers of complexity to something that could be pretty straightforward. Yeah. But a movie like this... I suppose it could be straightforward because like you said earlier, you could have their helicopter pilot going, oh yeah, you know, this guy, he's so wealthy. He earns, he's like a trillionaire. He's got a 500 mile wide estate, you know, and all of that stuff. It would be so easy for the movie to tell us what it thinks we need to know. But this movie is so smart. It gives us as much information as we need for, for the viewer to make up their own mind. But also that viewpoint can change because you think you know Caleb and then Caleb meets Ava and you think you know Ava and then she starts having conversations with Caleb who's having conversations with Nathan and you think you know Nathan and and what his ultimate goal is, why Caleb's there but then that all changes and then when you get to the end and we're going to talk about Kyoko as well because before we started recording I know You've got some really interesting things that I know you want to say about Kyoko. But all of these characters, they could be pretty one-dimensional. You could have the one-dimensional, multi-billionaire CEO. Oh, yeah, he's definitely the bad guy. And then the good guy comes in. How many times have we seen that trope in other films, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've got the good guy, Caleb, who's coming in. He meets Ava. And... He's altruistic. You know, he's a really good guy. in shining armour. He's here to save her. Well, this is the thing. I released an episode recently on Promising Young Woman, which goes into this good guy, in inverted commas, and and what 
a good guy can actually do. And I'm not suggesting that Caleb is that sort of person, but he is framed as the good guy. Nathan is framed as the bad guy. But it's more complex than that. And I think that's something that I really want us to go into, how the movie frames these characters. And all of this is kind of happening around the character of Ava, who in herself is such a fascinating, complex creation. And in many ways, you've got to kind of hand it to a guy like Nathan. You know, we can only assume from the movie that Nathan built her himself. How he did that, I'm not entirely certain because surely a a complex, human-looking robot, I would imagine, needs several people to build. But anyway, that's, that's kind of... So you know, what, what Oscar Isaac has said in interviews and kind of what Garland told him about the backstory of Nathan, he's been there for years. He's turned into like this weird hermit recluse kind of thing. So I think he has just been chipping away. And we kind of get a glimpse of that, right? We get the other quote-unquote prototypes of the other naked women. We'll, we'll talk about the, <laughs> the gender relationships in this movie as well. And how we see the footage of the various different versions where there's some skin here and then not some skin there and it's just like just the brain in a jar on a sort of human body and all this kind of stuff yeah i think it's it it definitely implies that nathan has built this himself over the last however many years that he's been hiding away and he has just completely shut himself off from the world and is just so focused on this in his weird little lab his weird little facility in the middle of nowhere. He has everything he needs because he's God and he doesn't need to interact with humans anymore, basically. is, is the inter- at least the interpretation I got. And from what Oscar Isaac said in interviews, from what I saw, that's kind of the vibe he was going for. Is like He almost doesn't know how to interact with humans anymore apart from manipulating them. And manipulation is such a key theme of this movie as well. Yeah. And understanding the dynamic between the three plus Kyoko plus the other androids that have also been and gone and are now hidden in closets and stuff it's a weird weird film to kind of pick apart because as you said you uncover one layer and much like kyoko's face you find another layer of circuitry and all kinds of robot stuff underneath and to to kind of stick with that should we dive into some of the kind of gendered side of things we we touched on Mm. kyoko we touched on ava and how kind of like the Caleb is the the nice guy stereotype like you were saying he thinks he's there to save Ava because she's a damsel in distress she's a princess to be saved and there's a brilliant YouTube video that really dives into this and there's a brilliant phrase and Sean on YouTube talks about how it's the literal objectification of women from both Nathan's side and Caleb's side they just have a different interpretation of women and the quote he uses here is this fascinating thing of like how do those two men interact with this woman and why are their interactions different and the quote from sean is neither caleb nor nathan view kyoko and ava as people they see them as women Mm -hmm. what a powerful statement about sexism and misogyny and so much of that is built into the tech industry as a person who works in digital marketing granted 
I'm a, I'm a cisgendered white guy, so I don't experience much of it. But I know a lot of my colleagues have experienced it. I'm sure, Em, you've experienced plenty of that in your career and your life and, and even in podcasting as well. It's this fascinating thing of he, she's a damsel in distress kind of beautiful princess to save for Caleb. She's, as I said earlier, she's just kind of a printer and a literal object for Nathan to keep building and rebuilding until he creates something he's satisfied with. Will he ever be satisfied? That's a whole other question as well. And then to talk about Kyoko, which I think Sean does a brilliant job of diving into that side of things and and playing up the importance of an entirely silent character that maybe gets like a few minutes of screen time across the entire movie. She is coded as Asian. Granted, they're all built, so she's not actually of Asian heritage, but she is built appearing asian played by a korean actress and not not a single time does caleb go oh yeah we should escape me you and kyoko ever we should all escape together because he doesn't even basically see kyoko there at all she's just this silent thing and you don't even realize necessarily that she's a robot or an android however you want to word it until later on because Nathan just says, ah, oh, yeah, she doesn't speak English. She's just the help. She's just, like, an Asian maid or something like that. Complete derogatory terms towards her. And Caleb's just like, oh, yeah, cool, okay. I- I'm in love with the, the beautiful white girl in the, in the box, yeah. so I, I won't, even, won't even worry about her. It's really interesting, isn't it, when you look at the gender bias in this movie, but you also look at Nathan has created all of these robots... They look like human women. He's made them look like... Look like models. Well, exactly. (laughs) They are incredibly beautiful, human-looking robots. But he's specifically made them look like women. They could have looked like men. They could have looked like dogs. They could have looked like anything. And they all look like beautiful women. They're all beautiful women. And he even talks about the robotic genitals and stuff Oh, my God. They, I mean, they yeah. even explore that thing of like that's what you want you want do you want to know i know the question you're asking like is she flirting with me it's like I, I know what you're asking here and the fact that he bases her design on caleb's choice of pornography because he has access to all the data i'm like that's so clever and so evil but so brilliant and yeah even talking about like yeah of course you can you can have sex with these robots do what you like they're they're objects they're not women, and by the end of the film, like I'm pretty sure Ava is a woman. I, I personally, I would consider Ava a sentient being at the point of the end of the movie where she gets on the helicopter and goes out into the real world and stuff like that. That's up for interpretation. Like I said, some people will just be like, she's a robot, she's basically a printer, who cares? Just reboot her. But there's that moment where it's like, yeah, I just reboot them, wipe the memory and start again, and Caleb goes, oh no, I've got to save my one true love. And, of course, he's picked because he's so lonely. And, like you said, Em, he's playing that nice guy, good guy role. He was chosen for a reason because of his weaknesses as much as his strengths. He's here to do the test. He's a programmer. He knows all about technology and AI and all that kind of stuff. Cool. He basically doesn't have any family. He's not really interacting with women, especially not beautiful women like these women. And... That's all purposeful. They really play up to this kind of loner, nice guy kind of thing where he's like, oh, finally a woman is paying attention to me. And then Nathan tries to crush that with like, well, obviously she's falling in love with you. You're the only other man she's ever seen. And I'm basically her dad. So 
by default, I guess, she's in love with you. Like, oh wow, just just crushing, just crushing Caleb's dreams and ambitions there. And again, that plays into is Caleb a good person? Is he just doing it because he has a big crush on Ava, and basically ignores Kyoko? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. let's let's be honest with this. I feel like if Ava looked like Kyoko or any of the other versions of these designs, then I think it's pretty clear that Caleb wouldn't feel the way that he feels. The idea yeah. of Nathan not only checking out Caleb's porn history to find this ideal-looking woman, clearly... We can tell pretty much exactly the sort of woman that Caleb is into. Caleb obviously has, throughout the midway of the movie, has his own kind of existential crisis where he questions whether he is a robot. Yeah. I find that quite fascinating because you would think that you would know that you were human. But if you were put in that situation whereby you couldn't tell if you were talking to someone else... And they were a robot because that's the point of the test, isn't it? It's it's yeah. can can Caleb prove Ava's sentience and that she could pass as a human, which I mean clearly she she can and she does. But then if you saw that, you probably would question your own mortality. You'd question your own beginnings. We know very little about Caleb, other than he's an orphan. His parents died when he was quite young, and. He questions it to the point where he actually slices into his own arm to see if he's robotic. Yeah. Which, that scene in itself, first of all, I don't know how he stopped that bleeding. <laughs> because that was yeah, bleeding quite heavily. Yeah, that's a proper deep, like, trying to kill yourself kind of yeah. cut, right? That's a pretty serious yeah. place. He gave, for, for those of you who aren't aware of the scene, he cuts, like, down his forearm lengthways. Which is a pretty serious place to start cutting yourself. And... I remember watching it the first time and I thought, oh, he's going to pull out like a microchip or like a some little thing that has lured him here this whole time or whatever. And they just leave it hanging. Like, nope. Yeah. He just cut him to himself because his psyche has been chipped away both by Nathan and Ava over the last week, basically. And yeah, it's a fascinating thing. You literally, when you're seeing like he's looking in the mirror and it's like scanning his face and stuff. And then that exact imagery is reflected back when you see the other androids later on and you see their faces being built and it's that blue light scanning across them. You're like, is he? Ooh, that's interesting. We're in some Blade Runner territory now. Is he a replicant? Who knows? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then kind of proves himself that he's not. But the fact that he has that kind of existential crisis, as you said, is such an interesting like turning point for him in that film right i think it's it's a brilliant moment and again credit to donald gleason's performance it's a brilliant brilliant bit of him like pulling his cheeks and looking at his teeth and trying to work out where where would the where would where would i find this and to reflect that kyoko has that moment where she pulls down the skin under her eye and i know again this is kind of covered in i've seen this covered in a few video essays and, and articles about this to me, that's Kyoko saying, I'm the same as Ava. I'm aware, and I may not speak English, but I am understanding things. And you have those little moments where she tilts her head to listen to things, or mm. she's in the same room and she blinks just as Nathan says a certain offensive thing. 
she definitely understands what's going on here. She may not be quite as advanced as Davis, who might be an, an earlier model, but there is a lot of processing, cognitive processing going on behind those eyes. And I think, from my interpretation, I think Kyoko is, that's her cry for help, right? That's her, she can't speak English, but that is her attempt to communicate with Caleb to say, we can all escape from this. I am as much a prisoner as Ava is, even though I'm allowed to wander around the facility and stuff. I am being used by Nathan, and if you're going to free her, free me as well, kind of thing. Yeah. And Caleb is just like, oh no, I might be a robot. And then he just internalizes it, and again, it's that nice guy thing of like, oh, that must be an issue for me then. Let's yeah. not worry about the woman. She's just an object. It's like, oh god. Nope. Every character turns likable and then unlikable and then likable again. It's a brilliant seesaw of who you're rooting for throughout this film. Yeah, and again, it's it's all to do with power dynamics, isn't it? It's like yep. Kyoko is seen as the lowest in that household because, as you said, she is literally just seen as the help. She is the person serving the food. You know, she's the person cleaning up when there's a mess. One of the most telling things about Nathan is, I think, how he treats Kyoko. Because we do see him interact with Ava, but we see him more in his interactions with Kyoko. And they're either violent, as in he literally screams at her for knocking over some wine, which yep. is not an acceptable thing to do. If someone accidentally knocks over a glass of wine, you don't scream at them for it. It's an accident, you know? Have you ever been to a restaurant with somebody and, like, say it's, a, it's early on in the dating process or something, or, like, your a family member or a friend introduces their partner for the first time and you realise how they treat the mm. staff and the waiters and waitresses yep. and they're suddenly snapping their fingers and shouting at people and you're like, oh, no, no, no you're, you're not the right person for me, I'm afraid. And Nathan plays into that. You're totally right. Like, he's just, oh, God, you're an idiot. How can you keep doing this? You keep dropping the things. It's like instant rage. And again, treating her like she's basically not there. She's just an object. She may be, may as well be a little drinks cart on wheels for all he cares. But she clearly has far more going on than even he realizes. Talking about, like, the evolution of her cognition, which happens to Ava throughout the film. She comes to understand her own existence more and more. I think a similar, maybe not as exaggerated, but a similar journey happens for Kyoko, even culminating in that, the the lost in translation moment of the whisper mm-hmm. of Ava says something to Kyoko and it triggers something. Do you have any theories about what Ava says to Kyoko at that point, Em? It's a really interesting scene because we were talking about this before we started recording and we were talking about Sean's video on YouTube, which I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who is interested in watching that because it is an absolutely fascinating video. And it highlighted several things to me. First of all, it highlighted the scene where Kyoko goes to see Ava for the first time, which I never really registered before. It's just a really throwaway scene. Nothing is said. Kyoko just walks into the room and then it basically moves to another scene. And we don't necessarily know that that's the first meeting. Again, they don't say like, oh my God, this is the first time these two characters have ever met. There's no dialogue that confirms this. It's just, what do you think? Is that a thing that's happening? Have they met before? Is there a previous relationship here? Well, 
this I'll, is... I'll leave it up to you. <laughs> exactly. It does leave it up to the viewer. But I find it quite fascinating. And this is something that Sean's video goes into, is that it highlights that Caleb hasn't been particularly truthful in what he's actually told Ava. Because yes. he tells Ava he's never met anyone like her, which technically at that point he hasn't when he says that. But he's actually kind of not told from our point, from our knowledge of what we see of the sessions, which again is a really interesting point because you get sessions with Ava popping up. So you get session one, session two and all of that. You think that that's from Caleb's perspective. But then towards the end of the movie, the sessions happen without Caleb. And then you realise, well, maybe the sessions are from Ava's point of view. And maybe yeah. it's not all about Caleb. Maybe it's not all about Nathan. Maybe it's actually about Ava. And this is one of the things I love about this movie is it's so smart. Nathan consciously made Ava look and present as female. And he did that on purpose. He gave her sexual organs on purpose. And he told Caleb about them on purpose. We see how he treats Kyoko. We also see the potential beginnings of some sort of sexual interaction between Nathan and Kyoko. But knowing what we know about Kyoko and the fact that she's treated so abysmally, I mean, I don't think that any sort of sexual relationship between Nathan and Kyoko could ever be considered consensual. Nope. So Agreed. he's using these robots he's making them look like women presumably because he is a heterosexual man and he is using these robots for things like domestic servitude and sex and then sorry i feel like i'm going off on a tangent but i feel like i need to say it when you look at ai in the real world and you look at alexa or siri or pretty much any my alexa's just gone off yeah <laughs> it's heard me they always do yeah, I know. That's the thing. That's exactly the point. It listens. I am literally in a different room and I said it quite <laughs> quiet and it still heard me. That is yeah. the point we were trying I, to I say, can't say earlier. Blah, 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 Google, because my kitchen will suddenly light up and freak out. So, exactly. Yeah. But all of those AIs, all of those voices, they're always presented as female. I think there is a male version of Siri that you can have. I don't have Apple products, so. I, I don't Same. know. Yeah. But generally, they use female voices because female voices are seen as more pleasant, unless you're Jane Lynch on Twitter. Sorry, that's <laughs> that's probably a bit too a bit too topical and no one will get it. But um, too, high, too high and whiny. Too... <laughs> but it's quite interesting that whenever you want something in your home and you ask your insert name of generic smart speaker <laughs> here in your home... You're asking them to do something for you. You're asking them for the weather report today or asking them to add flour to the shopping list or whatever you're doing. But you're asking someone of that. And that voice that's talking back to you is pretty much always female. And why is that? Why is there such a gender bias in AI when there's the gender bias in IT and, and IT professions? And you, you, know, you touched on this earlier, Jack. IT, as a sweeping generalisation, there's so many different variants and fields and genres of, of IT. It's, it's not just one thing. There's, there's all sorts of, of different professions in the IT field. 
but it's almost mostly male dominated, especially people of Nathan's position, you know, CEOs, senior management. Yeah. All, all the richest always... people in the world are all basically all men. Exactly. Massive percentage of all the CEOs in the world are men. We live in a patriarchal society and this is an exploration of that, right? This is taking this to the nth degree. Like we said, he is beyond Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Zuckerberg. Nathan is on another level. He is indescribably wealthy and impossibly powerful. Blue Book is Google and Facebook and Tesla all mashed in times a thousand. And so is Nathan. That's the whole point of his character, is to be that exploration of the peak of masculinity. Ties into his physical presence as well. He's in great shape. He's a really good-looking guy. That physical charm and Oscar's performance and him being funny and charming as well plays into all of that. He's he's a he considers himself like I'm sure he uses the term like alpha male or sigma male and all that kind of nonsense that people talk about in bro terms on Twitter these days. But Caleb is a beta. He's like the Weasley little dude who will basically do what he's told by Nathan and easily be manipulated by women, whereas Nathan sees himself above the women. Yeah. And the women are objects. And that's the whole exploration of this dynamic. And I find it so, so fascinating that people can kind of watch this film and not take away such a strong gender bias. Because, again, interviews with Garland, it is so clear that that is his intention to explore sexuality and the human side of this thing and explore the current situation we're in with all these massive tech companies all run by men all these governments around the world all run by men vast majority of the wealth and power in the world belongs to men that's all on purpose like that's not a coincidence that he's tackling and like i said this film is nearly 10 years old and it's more true now than it was then with people like Musk and Zuckerberg and Bezos and all this kind of stuff, you get these incredibly powerful, I'm basically God so I can just go to space whenever I want type people. It boggles my mind. I can't even imagine being that kind of thing. And yeah, Nathan is so clearly an exploration of that. And I think what ties the whole like sexuality together and all that kind of stuff, like as you said, you see him... He, he definitely has sex with the robots as he goes, right? Like, he's on his own for years with yeah. a bunch of beautiful mechanical women. He he definitely does, as you said, non-consensual things to these people, essentially, for all intents and purposes. He's a monster in yeah. that case. He's yeah, a yeah, terrible, yeah. terrible person. Because he is building these robots to be sentient so yeah. he is giving them consciousness. He's giving them feelings. He's doing that on purpose. It's almost like he's trying to justify it by saying, oh, well, you know, yeah, you can have sex with these robots because they'll get pleasure out of it. A hundred percent. It's like that's his justification. I've created this robot that looks like a beautiful woman that I can shag whenever I want. But it's okay because I've programmed her to get pleasure out of and, it. And to not get into a too dark subject and veer too far off but like that's what a lot of people say about situations of non-consensual sex in real life exactly like, well she enjoyed it so it counts it's like 
that's not how that works, you absolute monster. But that happens in court, across the world, in our, in our society and other societies all the time. And it is just a justification. You're so right. It's just the, well, yeah, I'll have pleasure, so it's fine. That's, that's not a justification. It's this weird, it, it, it's Nathan's ideologies clashing against each other, right? Is they, they are objects, but I'm trying to create a person. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. You can't treat them like objects and claim to be God by creating a person. Because if you created a person, they're not an object. And if they're objects, you've not created a person. So you're not God in his eyes. So which is it, Nathan? Like, yeah. You can't have it. But that's his whole dynamic in, in internally for him, I think. Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, Caleb comes in is I think that Nathan is just so, you know, he's kind of like, yeah, I know I've done a good job. Like, I know that I've made this girl beautiful and intelligent and... You know, this guy is going to want to f*** her. Let's be honest. Like, I've made this. This is the ideal girl for him. But I want proof that I've done a good job. So I'm going to bring this guy in. And I'm going to not only see if he can prove that she's sentient, but I'm going to see if she can play him. Because that essentially is the real reason that Caleb is there. It's not to prove the sentience of this AI. Because Nathan's already like, yeah, I know. I've done a really good job because I'm the best. Yeah. Because I'm God. <laughs> Caleb is only there to be, essentially, the patsy. And just how intelligent is Nathan? And just how intelligent has he made Ava through his own intelligence? Because yeah. he's a narcissist. It is all about him and about how great he is. And if he can prove that he's made this great, fantastic leap into the future of technology, then... Ultimately, it's all about him. It's definitely not about Caleb because I think he really doesn't care about Caleb at all whatsoever. He's literally Agreed. just a pawn. I think he cares about his creations. But as you said, he still just sees them as objects. And it kind of goes back into what you said as well. That's why they're women, because he would not have made male versions of these robots. There is no chance. They have to be women because of this inherent gender bias, seeing women as lesser beings. I mean, obviously, I don't agree, because I think women are amazing, because I am one. But <laughs> For the record, neither do I. Just, as a, just to clear the air there, as, a, as I said, as a cisgendered white dude with all the privilege in the world, basically, I also think women are great. <laughs> well, and just sorry, just going back to something that I did want to say earlier, but I segued off it a little bit. You were asking about the whisper between yes. Ava and Kyoko. And I kind of then launched into the, the kind of background and I meant to come back to it. But it's really interesting in that scene because Kyoko is already holding a knife. So there has been some planning. There has been yep. some intention there. Because Kyoko already has a weapon in her hand before Ava even speaks to her. It's not like Ava speaks to her and says, go get the knife or something. Kyoko is already standing there holding a knife from the kitchen, presumably. Again, that that totally could have been the scene, right? That could have been, we need to escape. You and I, if you get the knife, I can distract Nathan. And then you stab him. And Kyoko just nods. That would be heavy-handed and clunky. But it's not, it's subtle, it's clever, and it skips. I think it's so interesting. You, you are so right. I'm glad you picked up on that, M. That she already has the knife in her hand. 
It is not Ava telling her what to do. This is proof of Kyoko having thought. Mm-hmm. She may not be quite as advanced as Ava, but there's something going on that Nathan has massively underestimated her to his demise. Literally, she is the cause of his demise. If it wasn't for Kyoko, Ava probably doesn't escape. And Nathan probably doesn't get trapped and it's a whole other different ending to this film. Yeah. But Kyoko is secretly so key to all of this. Oh, 100%. So she is so vitally important because as you just said, even if Ava did manage to escape her room, she would have been overpowered by Nathan. On she's, her own. She's smashed straight away. He yeah. Gets a, I think it's like a pipe or a crowbar yep. or whatever it is. Oh, it's part of his work. Of course, it's a weight thing because of course it is. And it kind of shows that they're not like Terminators. They're not these indestructible exoskeleton can lift a thousand tons and a bulletproof and all this kind of stuff. He just smashes her arm off. Yeah. And it's kind of implied like, yeah, they're as fragile as humans. That would break somebody's arm. So it's broken her arm. And... He kind of talk, he briefly touches on the kind of like they have to be squishy because I'm trying to create human life and try to imitate that as close as possible. And the fact that we get I, I love, love, love the fact that the the murder of Nathan is so matter of fact. I adore again, this is talking about the I will come keep coming back to this, the subtlety of this film and how every action and every line of dialogue tells you more about these characters than another film that would be, you know, if I had written it, it would just be like, and Kyoko gets a big frowny face and screams and stabs Nathan 15 times. (laughs) That's nowhere near as interesting as just the very slow slide into into his back that you don't even see. And then Ava does the exact same thing. Ava does not go, oh, like, take like prometheus for example they're like oh my creator is here and they must die and blah 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 and it's all very dramatic and over the top she just slowly points it towards him and he doesn't move and she's strong enough to just force it in and she does a little twist and like that little moment right there there's no rage in her eyes and we see her emotions so often we have close-ups on her eyes and literally her doing all the like robotic facial reading calculation stuff you had a micro expression oh you think this because i read your i can hear your like blood or whatever like all these little like daredevil robotic kind of moments and then there's that little moment she stabs him and then there's a little twist on the end of that just a little she doesn't scream she doesn't shout like die father or anything <laughs> super dramatic and clunky but it is everything is just mm, just that nice little little element to everything and I just I love that scene so much because it says so much about all four characters interacting with each other in different ways it sums them all up and the journey they've been through the last hour and a half is just consolidated and solidified in those final moments it's really interesting as well because every single character has their own individual part to play in that finale like you say this movie is so subtle i mean it's subtle throughout in a sense that it doesn't scream at you and i love the fact that this finale is so kind of understated because the movie is purposefully understated and i think that's why i love it it would be really easy for a director in his so-called directorial debut to 
end with some flashy action sequence or like you say this big dramatic father you know get Matt Berry in there quick I I was just uh, that was a purposeful Matt Berry impression yeah. that I just did but they could have had this huge action sequence in this hallway you know I'm thinking like something like Daredevil where you've got like this brilliant one-shot action sequence I'm a huge fan of of action cinema I love one-shot takes we talk about dread there's a bunch of corridor just scenes so like the raid and stuff like that and daredevil amazing. another perfect example yeah amazing. you can take and, and garland can shoot action he we can. know he can he has done in the past he has done since but he chooses not to and it's in the script yes that it is all slow subtle movements and in the, in the original script actually so nathan obviously gets stabbed from behind by kyoko which is very tropey and like well overdone we're like oh no the main character is about to be killed and they're stabbed from behind and actually this is what i really really love there's deviations from the original script in the final version that add subtlety and character that i absolutely adore so i'll give you a couple of examples and i'll start with this moment here where nathan is stabbed for the first time originally the knife goes all the way through and he looks down and you see like the tip poking through his t-shirt and he like rips open his t-shirt and you see the knife and then the blood starts pouring we don't see that in the original one he's bleeding from behind and then he turns around it reveals the knife which then ava takes out and then stabs him in the front there was that second stab but i think that little twist of you don't even see kyoko you don't even see the knife he just uh, stabbed in the back and then the turn and the reveal is such a different vibe to seeing the thing like poke through his chest and then having to tear open his shirt and like look at it i like that version but i think the subtlety of the version we actually got in the final film says so much more about the characters and there's other moments a couple of bits i wanted to pick out of like me reading through the script basically as i was watching the film and kind of comparing yes that's the level of research i do i'm sorry <laughs> scene for scene like line for line dialogue and stuff there are moments where lines of dialogue are taken out from the original script i'm not sure if they were filmed but they're not in the final movie and there's specific moments of the question five do you want to be with me is the question that ava asks to caleb and in the script he says yes yes i do in the movie he doesn't answer properly and that is that says so much more about his like dynamic with ava at the time that he doesn't answer it's a bit heavy-handed that he would just go uh yeah i really fancy you you're a very beautiful lady and i don't really interact with ladies very much so i'd like to be your boyfriend please obviously they didn't go that far but yes yes i do to me is like yeah okay sure we all know that anyway that's fairly obvious if you're like like i said if you're paying attention to these performances in this film already picked up on that they've talked about it a couple of times and dropped enough hints you can kind of tell and the neighbor literally does the like are you attracted to me i can tell you're attracted your eyes are dilating like oh oh okay and then later on to finish off that session she asks do you think you can outsmart nathan and caleb once again replies with yeah i think i can and that is such a like foreshadow for the the final layers of manipulation for the final scene 
I think it was a very wise decision to cut that out because I think that would foreshadow the ending too much and make it a bit too predictable. I know some people, I, I was reading reviews earlier on today and some people say like, eh, yeah, I kind of guessed where it was going and all that kind of stuff. I kind of knew Ava was going to win, for want of a better phrase. And I think that's a far too simplistic look at this film. Like you said, M, with the amount of layers and the journey that these characters go on, I think obviously the obvious thing is like, oh yeah, he's built an AI, she is basically a person, she deserves to escape, is the... As we said with the very like plot synopsis bit, you can really boil this movie down into a couple of sentences and make it seem very simple. But the complexity is all throughout the what hundred minutes of runtime where you get all the dialogue moments. The 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 lack of dialogue in certain scenes says so much. The looks, the turns, the eye contact, the lack of eye contact, it's moments where you, you would expect to see oh there's a lot of eye contact between these two characters they're clearly falling in love but actually caleb chooses to not look at ava in certain situations because he isn't used to interacting with beautiful women and he can't and that adds another layer to it that adds that layer of complexity and i absolutely love that kind of stuff where and apparently this is all part of the, the filming process to kind of get into some of the behind-the-scenes stuff that ties this all together. Garland goes for a three-take approach, is how he words it. So he'll work enough and they rehearse the hell out of Alex Garland movies, especially something that is so closed off and such a small crew and such a small, relatively small production. Granted, it's like $15 million, but still relatively small in the grand scheme of things. They rehearse the hell out of these scenes and you get you get the take the, this is exactly what we want and then he says do something different let's get another take and he does that twice so there are certain scenes where alicia vikander would be acting slightly more robotic there are certain scenes where she's acting more human and sometimes he will take the second take where she was more robotic sometimes the second take is more human and garland like purposefully flips between the two throughout the film so you're kept on your toes you're not sure if she is Oh yes, I'm analysing your pupil response. I think you like me. And she's very robotic. And then she's suddenly like, do you, do you want to be with me? And that's a question a human would ask a human. Like, oh, oh, that's interesting. A second ago, she was scanning his face for micro expressions. And now she's talking to him like a person. And I love Garland's approach. Like the fact, and he gave the actors particularly those three slash four, including Kyoko, the four central characters and their respective actors, the room to do that kind of stuff. And Oscar Isaac and Donald Gleason and Alicia Vikander were talking about like, yeah, we, we got one really good take and then basically it was try something different and see how it feels. And apparently they really enjoyed working with each other because they would all come, all three of them in that scene would come with a different approach. And then, oh, that completely changes the dynamic because Oscar is doing a different thing and Donal is doing a different thing, but Alicia is doing the same thing as she was in the first take. So that's, oh, oh, the interesting, the dynamics of the acting and stuff. I love that sort of stuff. And I find that fascinating that they went to that degree of actually shooting extra takes to get different interpretations from the actors and giving them that kind of creative freedom. From what I understand... They absolutely loved making the film because you've got that creative freedom to do that kind of stuff, to do different things, to, yeah, let's try it. Let's see what happens. You know, I trust you. You're Oscar Isaac. You're Alicia Vikander. Let's do this. Let's see what happens. 
I find that so fascinating. I think it's a credit to Garland and his team, and it's a credit to the actors as well, that so many different nuances still pull through in the final movie, and it's from a bunch of different takes across a multitude of days of shooting, and I find that so, so interesting. Yeah, it is absolutely fascinating. I think it's a testament really to when you have a very clear vision, when you have a visionary writer and director, when you have great actors in your movie, and when you do have that creative control to be able to say, let's do it this way, let's try something else. When you don't have a studio, you know, breathing down your neck and demanding this and demanding that, that's often when some of the greatest movies actually occur when you don't have too much interference, when you're just kind of left to your own devices. And it's something that I come back to a lot on this podcast, where sometimes you can tell when a studio has really been a bit too heavily involved in something, where you feel like maybe the director's vision has been compromised or changed because some studio exec... All the time on sequelizers, I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) Exactly. When some studio executive thinks... Yeah, but do we really want Caleb to say that? Do we really want Ava to react like that? That doesn't appear to have happened in this movie because you can tell that everyone has a very clear vision of this movie. This movie, if made by someone else, written by someone else, starring someone else, could have been wildly different. It could have been a literal, you know, like we said, there's, you know, some huge action scene at the end. Everything is basically told... You know, you've got some character providing exposition for certain things that happen in the movie. Can you imagine if we had a Blade Runner-style voiceover from Caleb or something like that? It just... Well, when I first met Ava, (laughs) she was just a robot. And then eventually, after two or three days, I fell in love with her. This is me, and I don't care about this voiceover, because Harrison Ford did not care about that voiceover. (laughs) But yeah, you're totally right. That could be so... It could be so much worse. Yeah. And it's a miracle that it is just, everything just perfectly slots together. And it really does. And like, you, I mean, we've, we've mentioned loads of times on this episode so far about all the complexities, the layers. It's really, truly a genius piece of work, this movie, in that you can watch it multiple times. You can get different things out of it every single time. Like you mentioned before we started recording, I'll admit I was slightly more sympathetic towards Nathan. Maybe that's because it's Oscar Isaac and he, he's gorgeous. But Who also finding these nuances, because sometimes you do need to watch a movie several times to really pick up on the nuances. And one of the things that I really picked up on this time was more sympathy for Nathan, but also more, I guess, from my point of view, questioning Caleb and his intentions towards Ava, because he comes across, like you said earlier, as the knight in shining armour. He wants to save her. He sees her as the princess in a tower who he wants to rescue. And he claims it's for love. But is it really? Does he really love her? Does he really care for her? Does he really care about her situation? We've already established that he doesn't care about Kyoko. So why does he care about Ava? Kyoko being the key again, Em. Exactly. It all comes back to Kyoko in the end. But... The one thing that was cemented in my mind after this rewatch that I did for this episode is when you look at a character like Caleb, the quote-unquote good guy, he claims to want to save Ava and to set her free. What I took from it, I genuinely don't believe that's true. I I took from it that 
he wanted to go to this remote place. He wanted to meet Nathan because he's this huge CEO. You know, he's mega successful. When you're a guy, you're starting out, you're 26 in a company, you of course want to aspire to be more than you are. You want to be CEO one day. He sees Nathan as like this ultimate dude. You know, I want to be just like him. I'm pretty certain that the people who work at Facebook want to be exactly like Zuckerberg. You know, it's exactly the same principle. From this second viewing, I see Caleb as basically a future Nathan. So, yes, he sees Ava and he's in awe of her. He thinks she's amazing. He's just enamoured with her because she's beautiful and it's his ideal woman in so many respects. Literally, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And Nathan has basically programmed her and designed her with Caleb in mind. But with Nathan out of the picture, say, for example, they managed to escape together and Kyoko's got nothing to do with it because, as we've already said, Caleb doesn't care about Kyoko. You know, he has a dream sequence where him and Ava are in the forest and they're together and they're in love and they kiss and all of that. It's it's easy to romanticise their relationship because we see this boy and this girl and we want them to end up together. But I don't think it's as simple as that. I think that had this movie ended with Caleb and Ava going to the helicopter, you know, going out... Holding hands. You know, skipping as, as, as it happens in all these romantic movies and when the boy and the girl get together at the end, I feel like ultimately... Caleb would just want to have that semblance of control over Ava. Ava would never be completely free. He would always be there. It's the the objectification again, right? Exactly. the same thing. Because she's not a person. She's just a woman. She's just an object. She's a woman on a pedestal. She's an object on a pedestal. And, And that's how I think this movie would have ended. If this was real life and if this was the real scenario. Because I genuinely saw Caleb as literally just a wannabe Nathan. All he wants is the prize at the end. And it's exactly the same with a lot of these, you know, romance movies where, you know, the man and the woman get together at the end and it's like, the woman's like, I'll be yours forever. And the man's like, well, yeah, of course, because I'm the man, you know, you you are mine. And that's what Ava would be for Caleb. His belonging, not a person, just his belonging. You know, I have a I have a similar interpretation. Yeah, absolutely. I think it certainly starts off like that, and there are a couple of questions that are really key for me, for that that separates it. And again, what Sean touches on, in, and we're gonna bring up this YouTube video all the time, but I think it's an interesting interpretation. What Sean brings up in that video is how the Wikipedia article was wrong in his eyes for so long for his interpretation, where. In the final moments, Ava manipulates Caleb exactly as Nathan wanted him to, basically, is what it says. So this is all planned. This is Nathan's plan all along. But it goes slightly off script when Kyoko gets involved. But the plan was always to manipulate Caleb for her to escape, etc., etc. I don't think that's the case. And I think her leaving Caleb behind to die, essentially, because as we said... They literally say it's, there's no one for 150 miles or whatever, whatever the helicopter guy says. So he's stuck there. He's going to die. And there's that little look back that she does, that tiny little, again, micro-expression, beautiful performance by Alicia Vikander that Caleb's like, yeah, cool, okay, problem solved. Let's go. Unlock me. 
does the key card, the key card doesn't work and it starts dawning on him like, oh no. And I think, I don't, I don't think she is manipulating him the whole time. I think she is testing Caleb as well. And I think the literal question of like, are you a good person? And he goes like, yeah, yeah, I like to think I am. Yeah, sure. He's a good person in that he's not a monster like Nathan in so many ways. He doesn't create things and just destroy them and have sex with them and all this kind of stuff. But he falls under that nice guy category of like, yeah, once we escape, you will be mine and you will be on this pedestal forever and you'll never have a career because you're you're my wife and I'm going to control you or whatever it is. And there are moments where she says like, oh, what do you do? And he says, oh, I'm a programmer. She says, like Nathan? He goes, yeah, like Nathan. And there is noticeable disappointment in her face when he says, yes, I'm like Nathan. Because she knows Nathan is a piece of shit. And it's brilliant little performance moments like that. And again, all the subtlety in the acting and the writing. That I think she assesses Caleb throughout and then decides like. You're probably not worth bringing along. And if I do bring you along, as you said, Em. I don't think it ends well for me. Because you're going to be like Nathan. You're going to control me. And I think Caleb goes into the movie wanting to be like Nathan. You're totally right. He wins the prize. He's going to meet the CEO. He gets to be part of the greatest discovery of mankind. No, wait. The greatest discovery of gods. All this kind of aspirational, incredible stuff. And then obviously he realises what a horrible person Nathan is. Turns against him. Does the whole manipulation of his side of things. But he does. I don't think he realises that Ava's mind is also being made up at the same time. Because he's not seeing her as a person. He's seeing her as an object. seeing her as a woman. And not as a fully thinking being who can make up her own mind. I mean, actually, no. You're not the best outcome here. The best outcome is me escaping by myself and going to explore the world. I'm probably better off without you. The world is probably better off without men like you and Nathan. So peace out see you later <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting at that point where she goes to the elevator to to get out that she looks at kyoko first yes and that kyoko is immobilized we assume that she's dead because her face has been ripped off but the movie suggests that kyoko cannot go with her so i think in yep. that in that moment had kyoko been able to go i think she would have she would have taken, taken kyoko, kyoko. Absolutely. Yep. And yeah, I mean, okay, it's pretty sad that Nathan died. It's pretty sad that Caleb is basically doomed to die in this remote place. But, you know, kind of serves them both right, in all honesty. Yep. And like I say, when I say I have sympathy for Nathan, I think it's because, maybe be just because Oscar Isaac, to be honest. But I don't think his intentions are pure in any way, shape or form. But does he deserve to die by those people that he's created? I mean, actually, yeah. you could probably say yes, he does deserve to die. I, I think there's a there's a spectrum here, right? There's it's The whole point is that it's not black and white, and they literally mm -hmm. explore that with the conversation of being black and white and the, the dream sequences that are also in black and white. There's so much grey area there that because just because intentions aren't pure doesn't mean they're evil. Mm-hmm. You can come from a selfish point of view, but the fact that he has created Ava is incredible. It is the single greatest thing any human arguably has ever done in the history of time. 
but he's a dickhead. So, <laughs> like, he. <laughs> it's a weird thing, right? Like, I don't think intentions have to be pure or impure. And if they are impure, that doesn't necessarily make them evil. I think his intentions are good. Again, good is the wrong word, but there's there's obviously ego in there, Him, his whole God complex thing, but him wanting to create Ava, there's an element of pride at the end of the day when he realises, like, yeah, she's been, been manipulating you, dude, is what he says. Like, yeah, this is the whole plan. She is beyond you because you're just some guy. She is something special. And even if he's objectifying her, he still sees her as this daughter. He literally says she she thinks of me as her dad, right? He still has that element of a relationship with her. And I think there is an element like the his final words are just fucking unreal <laughs> as he stumbles away and bleeds to death. And he doesn't again, it's not overplayed. There's no like Oh no, my creation. How could you have done this to me? Oh, the thing I created is the thing that destroyed me. No. None of that. He just reacts. And I almost think he's kind of like, she really did pass this test. She passed it even more than I thought she would. And this is a real kind of success story. I, I will die knowing that I really have created life even more than I thought I had. There doesn't need to be a revision. There doesn't need to be the next model. I don't need to go and wipe her memories and start again. I've done it. <laughs> and he dies. Yeah. And he's, he's such a narcissist that he probably did think that just before his death as yeah. well. I mean, the thing that you mentioned, actually, about him essentially being her father and her seeing him as her dad, that even makes it a bit more creepy when you add that sexual aspect of, yeah, I gave her sexual organs so she can experience pleasure. And then in yep. another sentence, he's saying, yeah, I'm her dad. That is mega creepy. Like that adds to the creepiness. Because did he see all of these as his quote unquote daughters? That, that's some f***ed up right there, you know? Does, does she become his daughter because she has a certain level of sentience? Is that like a cutoff point where they go from... Because he, he, like we said, he very clearly views Kyoko as an object, a robot, just a a waitress, a servant, or whatever you want to call it. But she is... He underestimates her, and that costs him his life. And the fact that Ava influences her, or, you know, the, the final whisper there as well, his underestimation of her is his ultimate downfall. And the fact that, yeah, is there a sense of pride there as well? That, oh, wow, I've not just created one, I've created two. Granted, he kind of kills off Kyoko in rage and stuff like that, but... Yeah, it's fascinating. I think he vastly underestimates what he's created and that is kind of the whole point of his hubris. That is yeah. is Icarus flying too close to the sun. That's a story Absolutely. that has been told for millennia at this point throughout humanity of man wishes to become God. It, it's Jurassic Park as well, for God's sake, like tying it all back round. It, it's a theme that's explored so often, but I think the way this film does it is so interesting and so detailed and so nuanced i just like you said repeated viewings me not clicking the whole nature thing when it's right in your face and these massive landscapes the opening shot is a massive landscape like that's the whole point and i'm like oh yeah i never really thought about all the gorgeous norwegian scenery and stuff i just thought that's really pretty what a lovely place to put an estate 
anyway, let's watch the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then actually tying it all together. It's like, oh yeah, that's tying into another theme of this yeah. film. I'm going to segue, as I like to oh, do, yeah. into the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode. Because, <laughs> well, if anyone who doesn't listen to this podcast, I like to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. Just because he is literally the best of men. And he would not behave in any way like Nathan or Caleb. That's not the reference, but I just wanted to put that out there. Because he is the best <laughs> of men. But literally the first thing that came to my mind when I was thinking of Ex Machina, was the robot Usses from Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Now, they're not as technologically advanced as Ava, and technically they are the evil versions of Bill and Ted, Mm. but they are technically sentient beings. They are just sentient versions of Bill and Ted, so they know Bill and Ted. They don't know much else other than Bill and Ted. But they're as sentient as Bill and Ted can be. And so therefore, they... I mean, that's really the only reference that I could put in, unless you've got another one that you can think of off the top of your head, Jack. No, I think that works quite well. I think Keanu Reeves is a better man than Nathan and Caleb also works. So, you know, we'll take that We'll take both. As well. <laughs> <laughs> so... As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you have actually done my work for me pretty much. Bit of it, yeah. To, to round this episode out because I hadn't looked at any of the release or financial information, just mostly because, I'll be honest, I haven't really had the time this week to actually go into all that. I was going to do it all in post, but Jack's basically done it. So we might as well quickly I, I, run through I it. I do it for sequelizers, so I thought I'd help you out. You know? Well, so, yeah. you know, if you want a job, for verbal diorama, <laughs> then, I mean, this this is a great interview process. You need a research process. assistant or anything. Then, well, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. You know, you've, you've passed <laughs> stage one interviews. So basically, that's Se- what this session is. One, session one. Session one. Yeah. <laughs> you, you've passed. So, yeah, how, how do you want to go through all this stuff? Because I realise you've kind of done it, so... Yeah, so not to take over your podcast, but let's let's dive into a little bit and i'll even bring a game from sequelizers over to verbal diorama sequelizers listeners you know where this is going but let's start off with financials i've kind of touched on it a couple of times right we mentioned pretty low budget and the fact that alex garland never makes any money from his movies and that's why they end up on netflix and the same is kind of true of ex machina so we're basically dealing with a 15 million dollar budget give or take that's production budget bear in mind and we say this on sequelizers all the time marketing budgets are a significant proportion on top of that mm-hmm. i know you've covered this in verbal diorama regularly as well em when you talk about the financial side of things you have to factor in that marketing budget for massive productions if you're talking you know the big blockbusters of the last 10 or 20 years you double your production yeah. budget if it's a hundred million dollar film that's actually 200 million dollars because it's a hundred million dollars of marketing as well Granted, Ex Machina is nowhere near that scale, but it's got to cost more than 15 million. Probably closer to 20 or 25 would be my guess from the the somewhat muted level of marketing it gets compared to much bigger stuff. But still, say 7 to 10 million on top of that. The box office is only ever so slightly higher than that. So we've broken it down into the domestic, which is, of course, US, because every figure from box office is always US-based, is 69% for episode 169. Hey. You're welcome. 
69, uh, exactly. Is twenty five million four hundred forty two thousand nine hundred fifty eight dollars to be precise, according That's to Box Office precise. Mojo. That, that was that was the stats I pulled from Box I'm Office Mojo. I'm never that precise. <laughs> <laughs> Box Office Mojo, to their credit, I think they're probably the best estimations for this kind of stuff especially historical stuff going back and then for the international side of things of course 31 percent is left over that's 11 million four hundred fifty three thousand two hundred eighty four to give you a final worldwide total of 36 million eight hundred ninety six thousand and two hundred and forty two dollars so as we said if you're talking a production budget let's be generous and say 22 million including marketing and stuff you're only making 14 10 to 14 million on top of that that is not enough for most studios that is a wire thin margin for most studios to be thinking about when it comes to producing movies you want to be a much much higher making much more money with that kind of stuff so the garland curse strikes again essentially (laughs) for his movies not making much money unfortunately are you surprised by that do you think that's kind of in line with with garland's career m does that yeah, I, I'm not especially surprised by the fact that it didn't make very much money. I feel like this movie is quite underrated. Like, it never seems to come up when people say about their favourite sci-fi movies or, you know, their favourite AI movies or robot movies. I feel like this doesn't get mentioned as often as it should get mentioned. And we mentioned Sunshine as well, right? That's another... Exactly. He's like... Alex Garland's entire career is a bunch of hidden gems. Basically. Oh, totally. Like, 100%. And, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because you would think, like, someone like Alex Garland, when he continually kind of produces hit out, not, not hit, but, you know, like, great movie Dude, that's after the thing. great They're movie, not <laughs> that maybe one day it will happen for him. But it's like, it's something that I often talk about, you know, especially when I talk about movies from Leica. Like could do the most yep. incredible movies, like the most beautifully animated stuff that exists. And yet their movies never make money. It's not because they're making bad movies. They're making astonishingly excellent movies. But for some reason, the audience just isn't there. And I feel like Alex Garland is like a similar thing. He's like the Leica yep. of sci-fi movies in a way. So basically, I'm not surprised. This is one of those movies that desperately deserves an audience and just on a by note listeners i picked this movie up on blu-ray from amazon and it actually had an offer on it at the time so i ended up paying i think it was like four pounds 55 for this movie on blu-ray and i mean this is a beautiful looking movie as we've said as you said earlier Jack, this movie is almost 10 years old. It still looks incredible. This is a movie that is going to... It's aged remarkably well, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to continue to age remarkably well. I feel like this movie is only ever going to get more poignant, better as it ages. And I hope it kind of starts to get an audience as it ages. I feel like it's maybe on the cusp of like a cult classic. I don't think it quite is a cult classic, but I hope it gets there and I hope it finds that cult audience because if anything deserves an audience it's this like 100 percent. Yeah. so you mentioned about your your little game that you do on sequelizers so certainly do shall we play it certainly so for those of you who don't listen to sequelizers first of all shame on you come and listen to sequelizers and second of all we love to talk about rotten tomatoes on sequelizers because rotten tomatoes is mental 
it's sometimes completely inaccurate and the wrong reviews are attributed to the wrong things and some of the numbers you hinted at one earlier and the infamous 57 percent film that we talk about that is uh unappreciated del toro goodness mm-hmm. there is the tomatometer which yes is the official term for it which is the critic reviews of a film and there is the audience score and the interesting thing and why Rotten Tomatoes is mad and should never be used, but why we find it hilarious to talk about on sequelizers is that is not an aggregated review score. That is not 92% out of 100%. That is the percentage of positive reviews of this movie. And a positive review is counted as 3 out of 5, 60%, 6 out of 10, whatever the equivalent of that is, is counted as a positive review. So this is the percentage of reviews that say it is a 6 out of 10 or higher, essentially. Mm-hmm. What a bizarre metric to measure things by. Whoever thought that up is mad. But I think that makes it much harder to guess, personally. Because you really get into the like, oh, I can see a lot of people seeing this as a 6 out of 10. Rather than it could be really high and loads of people see it as an 8 or a 9 or a 10 out of 10 or whatever. It's an added added little extra element we like to play around with on sequelers. So, my question to you, uh-huh. as my cat arrives in, in, the, in the studio... What do you think the tomatometer score as of the recording of this episode of the podcast, because sometimes it changes, Yes, is for Ex Machina? Any guesses? So we're talking about the critic score, just to be clear. The the critic score, that is the tomatometer official score, yes. Okay. I'll, I'll even give you a clue. There are 284 critical reviews. Okay. So that gives you, that ballparks you in a... I don't know if that helps. I don't know if that makes things more complicated. I mean, but it, it doesn't. Extra data for you. <laughs> it doesn't. But I'm I'm thinking. I mean, first of all, the Rotten Tomato score. I sometimes quote it on the podcast. It tends to be the one that I go for, but most of the time they're not completely accurate, as you say. I am trying to think as the way that a film critic would think, which. I am that, not one of those. That's the other element as well, yeah. I am not what one of those. What do critics think about this? Mm, did they hate it? Did they love it? <laughs> like somewhere in the middle? I feel like this is this movie is a goldmine for critical thinking. And based on that point, and based on how much this movie does make you think, when you go away from it, when you come back to it, I feel like critics liked this movie. And I believe that... I'm going to say 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. I believe that 86% of reviews were 6 out of 10, 3 out of 5, or higher for this movie. Very interesting that you say 86%, because that is the audience score. What? Oh, no! I thought the audience would be lower. That's what I thought as well. I had assumed a lot of people would be like, oh, it's just a bunch of people talking for an hour and a half. But yeah, the 86% is actually the audience score. Unsurprisingly, the Tomatometer score is higher than the audience score. And thank God it is high enough that I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll allow that. Critics, you haven't screwed me over like you did with a certain other movie that we talk about regularly. It is, in fact, 92%. I mean, I'm really glad because when you said that it was the audience score, I then thought to myself, oh, God. Is this another scenario of that Guillermo del Toro underrated movie that we keep mentioning on this that, podcast? That was my worry as well. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could cope. 
Ex Machina was severely underrated by critics. Imagine so if picked, it was like 67%. Jesus. Like, <laughs> I don't think I could live. I'd be like, where's Kyoko with that knife? God damn it. Um, I mean, that that's made me happy because, I mean, this movie deserves the critical praise. Definitely. And I'm, I'm glad that the audiences loved it. I... Yeah, guess I underrated surprise. the uh, sorry underestimated the audience. Yeah, absolutely. So to kind of go across a couple of other things, we don't really talk about this much on sequelizers, but to kind of cover a few of the other metrics we use to kind of think about how audiences see it and stuff like that. IMDb is usually a pretty good judge of how audiences see it, and it's more with more in line. So these again, this is the difference between the aggregated score of this is a weighted average out of 10, out of 100, whatever. IMDb is 7.7 out of 10 from just over half a million ratings. So 534,394 people have reviewed it and a weighted average score of 7.7 out of 10 on IMDb. That's kind of where I'd expected it, as we said, like the, Hmm. oh, that should be much higher than that. But I can see enough people being like, I don't get it, I don't like it, it's not my thing, I wanted action, I didn't get action... I wanted sexy robot ladies having sex. I didn't get that. <laughs> you know, I can see a lot of people going in with the wrong kind of impression and being disappointed with it. So, yeah, that doesn't doesn't surprise me too much. And along very, very similar lines, going over to Metacritic, which again is talking ag- aggregated score across critical reviews, it's Metascore of 78% and a user score of 8 out of 10 from just under 1,400 reviews from the users there. So... We're kind of hovering around that 7.5 to 8 kind of mark. But it's nice to see enough people consider it at least a 6 out of 10 or higher to make it 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, which yeah. warms my little mechanical heart occasionally. I mean, it, it kind of restores some faith in humanity. I think I think we're all struggling for faith in humanity at the moment. But you have to watch in this film. Well, exactly. So I think it's nice that the people who did see this appreciated it for the masterpiece and I don't, I don't bring the M word out very often, but I really do think this is, this could be seen as a sci-fi masterpiece. And I, I certainly, think it's a masterpiece. Yep. and I certainly think as the years go on, you know, as people revisit this and you know introduce this movie to other people, as I said, I think it's almost, it's very almost a cool classic. You know, like a lot of people look at something like Blade Runner and they think, oh, you know, well that. That is a seminal sci-fi classic. I mean, I'll be honest, I'm not the biggest fan of Blade Runner, (laughs) but I know a lot of people are. I prefer the sequel, which, you know, probably... Controversial. It is controversial, but it's not a sequel that you guys are going to be covering anytime soon, I don't think, because I think that sequel's great. But anyway, I have faith in that maybe this will be in the future seen as, you know, a seminal sci-fi classic, a masterpiece, you know, because it's definitely, in my opinion on its way there there's so much intricacy and detail and layers and complexity and everything that we talked about for the last like two hours in this movie <laughs> yep. it's, it's ironic isn't it that this episode is going to be longer than the movie you're used to that on sequelizers <laughs> i am yeah we, we managed to do an episode about Zack snyder's justice league the snyder cut that was almost as long as the snyder cut itself I mean, so jesus I, I, I do have kind of a history and a bit of a track record for this so You're welcome, listeners, for extra (laughs) verbal diorama content. Do you want to finish on some awards? I wanted to highlight a couple of ones outside of the obvious ones. So it did actually win Best Visual Effects. And weirdly enough, that's not really something we spent too much time talking about. No. Because we could be here for hours, as as we kind of said. 
the visual effects in this movie are spectacular and the way Ava is translucent and see-through and robotic but also human brilliant incredible stuff and huge credit to Andrew Whitehurst, Paul Norris, Mark Williams Arderton and Sarah Bennett who are the primary visual directors and the visual effects team for that they actually won the Academy Award that they were nominated for and Best Original Screenplay also nominated was Alex Garland for Ex Machina as well I think huge credit to the visual effects team that we've like I said not really touched on but they won a bloody Oscar for it so congratulations to them that's very cool and to kind of dive into the real success it saw as we said not much financial success but in terms of independent films and british filmmaking and stuff it won a lot of those awards especially the british independent film awards it won the best british independent film of the year for that year alex garland won best director and best screenplay the visual effects also won and he also won outstanding director for the first time feature film not counting dread from the directors guild of america as well so Awards across the board from a lot of the more kind of nuanced, more independent, smaller kind of awards. And it still won an Oscar for its visual effects. So it definitely did get a lot of recognition. But like you said, it still kind of flies under the radar for so many people. And hopefully, if you haven't seen it already, and we've just spoiled the hell out of it for the last two hours. Hopefully you saw this episode announced on Twitter by M and we're like, aha, I've been meaning to watch that. Let me go and watch that. So fingers crossed we'll have influenced some of the listeners to go and check it out as well. I hope so, because we've talked about this movie for over two hours and we could literally sit here and talk about this movie for another two another hours, two. another four yeah. hours. Easy, because there's there's so much to unpack here. And just to quickly mention the visual effects, as I said, this movie holds up so well. It's going to continue to hold up for its themes, for its visuals, I feel like this is this is going to be a seminal sci-fi movie in the future. And it deserves to be. Honestly, Jack, I'm just so delighted that not only could you last minute come on Verbal Diorama, but that you chose a movie like this for us to discuss. I hope that when this goes out to listeners, I feel like it's going to be such a, a beneficial and rewarding discussion for them to listen to. And that's basically all down to you and for your selection and for you coming <laughs> on and basically doing my job for me, which you are welcome to come on and do any time, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like we need to wrap things up. Huge thanks, Jack, for coming on. Obviously, you've mentioned sequelizers. Please take a moment to let the listeners know where they can find sequelizers and basically how they can listen to your amazing podcast. <laughs> well, you can go to sequelizers.com. That's probably the easiest way to find us. You can find our links for the live streams. As I mentioned, we had M on October 2021, which seems like so long ago now. For our Halloween stream, we talked all about Guillermo del Toro. We did a whole series of live streams where we had a guest on. They would pick a director. And as you said at the top of the show, M, we basically have a tournament bracket where we ranked all of their films and then we recently capped off that series by taking all of the winners of all of the tournament brackets, put them in a tournament bracket and battled it out between the three of us and decided objectively what's the best film of all time, no questions asked. So yeah, go and watch that. There's lots of content there. If you want to come and support us, of course, we also have a Patreon. As I mentioned, Em and I support each other on Patreon. <laughs> so <laughs> Sequelizers are on Patreon as well. That's patreon.com slash sequelizers. Like I said, Links for all that stuff, all the Discord, all the social media stuff are at sequelizers.com. 
We are sequelizers on Twitter and Instagram as well. It's spelt the British way, and I don't say this on my own show. I stopped saying this after a couple of years, but there's no A's or Z's in sequelizers. It's the word sequel, so S-E-Q-U-E-L, and then I-S-E-R-S on the end of that. So, yeah, it's a pun on the word sequel, not the pun on the word equal, and we're British, so we say sequelizer with an S, not with a Z. If you want to follow me directly, I'm JLW Chambers and all the social media stuff as well. And I also do another podcast about digital marketing and stuff called Search with Candor. So if you work in SEO or digital marketing and you need to keep up to date with the latest news and all that kind of stuff, you can come and tune into that on your podcast app of choice there as well. Wow, this has been amazing, I have to say. This has been so much fun to just sit and chat with you. We chatted for about... 45 minutes before we even started <laughs> recording so this has been a pretty immense chat and we basically as we were talking we were like oh we need to save this for the recording we need to save this but i think i think we got everything in that we originally talked about i don't think we missed uh, anything oh there's but... there's plenty plenty more we didn't even we barely scratched the surface on the biblical references that's a huge topic but oh yeah we that's didn't. a whole whole other discussion <laughs> Uh, listeners go go and watch a bunch of youtube videos like i said em will put up the links for sean's video in the show notes so go and check out a bunch of that literally searching like x machina on youtube gets you a bunch of really interesting analysis interpretation and stuff so if two hours of us talking about it isn't enough go and check out there's plenty of other amazing creators that have done different analysis there as well we didn't even talk about the dance scene which is probably one of the most iconic scenes oh, in the whole yeah. movie the most iconic gif from that yeah film, at least yeah we didn't even talk about that um we didn't yeah. even talk about the music you wanted to mention no. the music didn't you yeah yeah that the final moments where bunsen burner by cuts kicks in and you like have that driving synth and stuff and that perfect amalgamation and blending of the finality of the film and the the tone of the music coming together it's brilliant stuff and i think the whole soundtrack is a really interesting twist on like nature and technology and it's got synths and real life instruments and all kinds of mixtures of stuff again we could talk about that for an hour i, I know i certainly could so. <laughs> yeah <laughs> go and uh, go and explore that as well listeners yeah definitely there's there's so much out there there's so much more than this discussion there's as you said so much more analysis and because this is a movie that you could take multiple different ways just because we've took it a certain way doesn't mean that someone else takes it that way so it's definitely worth checking out different analysis different videos different podcasts even because i'm sure that there are many podcasts who've done episodes on ex machina so once you have listened to this podcast then i think it would be a really good exercise to go out and find other podcasts and listen to them as well just to get a difference of opinion i suppose but luckily for us jack we are very aligned i think in our opinions just generally not just on ex machina but i think yeah, generally yeah. like across the board like we <laughs> that's kind of how we kind of got chatting to each other i think was because we just kind of have the same opinions about most things so you know that's always nice uh, it's always nice when men agree with me is basically what i'm saying huge thank you to jack for joining me for this episode on ex machina and thank you for listening to as always i would love to hear your thoughts on ex machina if you do want to support this podcast you can do so without paying a single penny and you can help this podcast to hopefully reach more listeners and you can do that by leaving a rating or review wherever you found this podcast telling your friends and family about this podcast or you can simply retweet or like posts on social media i am at verbal diorama on twitter facebook instagram and letterboxd 
Just a quick note about the next episode. It is the final episode of August, but not the final episode of August. And I'm keeping with the theme of sequels. So we're going from a guest from Sequelizers to guests from Sequel Pitch. And for the first time, two guests. I'm going to be joined by Drew and Matt from Sequel Pitch. It's been said that Verbal Diorama and Sequel Pitch are so similar in the world of podcasting. We're like twins. Me, a solo female-hosted film history podcast, and them, a podcast hosted by four dudes where they create fictional sequels. As I said, basically twins in every respect. So they're going to be joining me for the best movie about twins. And unfortunately, not The Parent Trap or The Princess Switch. Twins separated at birth, though. Take out the papers and the trash. That's a terrible, that's a terrible impression. But hopefully you get what I mean. Drew and Matt are going to be joining me for the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito comedy, Twins. And to make it extra poignant, Matt himself is a new father of twins. So it's going to be a lot of fun to speak to those guys about this movie. Join me next week for the first rule of a crisis situation. You mess with me, you mess with my whole family. That's slightly better. Obviously, Jack mentioned Sequelizers has a Patreon. I also have a Patreon as well. And if you want to become a patron, you can get things like early episodes, access to the schedule, freebies, and basically the knowledge that you are hopefully making this podcast better. And also you get swears in episodes. This episode's got a few swears in. I know because I've just been through and I've just checked all the swears. But the main feed will always be family friendly and suitable for all ages. If you are interested in checking that out, it's verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. Huge thank you as always to the amazing patrons of this podcast. Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian M, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Ian D, Jason, Sunny, Drew, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete and Heather. Impulse response, fluid, imperfect, patterned, chaotic. I do have a merch store, it's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. If you're interested, you can also get in touch with me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can say hi, or you can pop over to verbaldiorama.com. You can also pop over to filmstories.co.uk, check out the magazine that I write for and the articles that I write online as well. And finally, Kyoko. Kyoko. Where's Nathan? Where's Nathan? Jesus Christ, you really don't speak a word. What the fuck? Oh, no, 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 no. Stop. No, no, don't do that. Don't do that. You don't have to do that. I told you, you're wasting your time talking to her. However, you would not be wasting your time if you were dancing with her. Go ahead, dance with her. Dance with her. No? You don't like dancing? She does. 
Come on, buddy. After a long day of Turing test, you gotta unwind. What were you doing with Ava? What? You tore up her picture. I'm gonna tear up the fucking dance floor, dude. Check it out. Hey, uh, editing M, you're gonna hear me vaguely humming, I think it's Separate Ways by Journey. That's what I've got in my head right now. So you're just hearing me, and here we stand, and then the heart in two, two, two. You got all this to look forward to when you edit this episode. Slash, I apologize for my terrible singing of Journey. But also, you're kind of welcome. <laughs>